It's now time for the City Club of Idaho Falls Forum, airing the final Monday of each month at 7 p.m. here on KISU. This evening's guest speaker is constitutional scholar Dr. David Adler. This audience knows Dave Adler very well. Uh, I thought in preparing to to introduce him to this audience that knows him so well that it's a little bit like my appearing on The Tonight Show to introduce Jay Leno. Uh, this would not really be necessary for me to do at any great length. But it's important to underline the fact that David Adler, Dr. David Adler, is a renowned constitutional scholar, that his reputation is nationwide, and that he has lectured and been admired by audiences in colleges and universities, by historians, by political scientists, by politicians, really over the world. And we have been exceptionally fortunate to have had him with us and as a part of this club and as moderator for this club and its exceptional array of programs over the past three years. But he is moving on now uh, to my personal regret, but with my great personal compliments and best wishes as I'm sure would be the case with many of you. He's recently been appointed as the James A. and Louise McClure Center for Public Policy Research at the University of Idaho in Moscow. Well, that assignment will take him away from us frequently, and uh, for that we can be regretful, but we can certainly wish him well in that new place. Uh, Tally will continue to live here in Idaho Falls, at least for a while, and David will do a lot of commuting, so we hope to have him back from time to time and in his role as moderator uh, of these discussions and, and presentations to our city club. David's work has, uh, as I say, been recognized really around the world. He is a scholar and an author, and an author of more than 100 pamphlets and pieces and chapters of constitutional scholarship that have attracted awards and prizes, uh, again, from many of his distinguished academic colleagues. He's been interviewed by the New York Times, by the Washington Post, by Newsweek, and National Review, and been heard on NPR and the BBC. And some of his lectures have been heard on C-SPAN. So David is certainly exceptionally well qualified to be doing what he is doing for us today. The focus of his constitutional study has, at least in recent times, been the presidency and how our presidency fits into our constitutional framework. Something of great controversy uh, in this community, in this state, in this nation, and of interest around the world. So without further introduction, and with an invitation to all of you to provide David with your questions uh, at the conclusion of his remarks, I ask you to join me in welcoming Dr. David Adler.
As, as a caveat to that, uh, let me say, I brought with me the Constitution, two copies that I will loan to anybody in the audience who is looking for specifics that they want to point to in questions for Dr. Adler. So I'm seated right here. Kelly, wherever you are, will come get one of these for you if you would like to have it. And I urge you to ask lots of good, hard questions. <laughs> well, that's not fair. Now you're going to be holding me uh, to account. Um, I want to say what a pleasure it is to, to be home here, here in Iowa. <laughs> Just checking to see if you're listening to me. I want to commend our president for speaking so eloquently about the Constitution and its importance to America and acknowledging the late Senator Robert Byrd for using his influence to push through legislation to require all universities and colleges around the country to commemorate the Constitution, which I think was a very, very fine act. And I, I can't say enough about um, the honor of being introduced by such a distinguished attorney as my good friend Tim Hopkins. I've learned much from him over the years and well remember our great discussions on the porch at the Sandpiper, I think. <laughs> I thank all of you for coming out today as well to listen to some remarks that I have to share with you about the Constitution. This is a day uh, to celebrate the Constitution and I urge you all to, to bring the enthusiasm to this celebration that you normally bring to St. Patrick's Day. It's on the, on the same order, I think. When we celebrate the Constitution, we engage in some commemoration of a document which is the envy of the world. Nations all over the world have attempted to imitate it. They have emulated some of the provisions and practices found within the four corners of the Constitution, and it's well that they should do because America's Constitution is the oldest written Constitution. It is the most effective. It is the most successful. And the reality is, is that it is a Constitution that was written by the brightest, most able Americans of any generation in American history. And the very fact that it continues to thrive uh, reflects their considerable talents, but also, I think, their great humility. Because above all else, you'll recall, they included in the document Article 5 of the Constitution, which is the amendatory clause. And that allows subsequent generations of Americans, you and I, to improve upon their work. We've not done that very often. We've only amended their work 27 times. But the reality is they were humble enough to recognize that they didn't have all the answers. They knew that America would change over time and they wanted to leave it to Americans to improve upon their work and to take account of technological and sociolog sociological changes that they could not have anticipated. And so our hats are off to them, not only because they gave us a structure which has now survived well over 200 years, but because they bequeathed to us a document that leaves in our hands the opportunity to continue to think long and hard about the pressing issues of our time and to contrive solutions that reflect our own values and our own needs and our own perception of what America might need at any particular juncture in our history. 
When we take a look at the Constitution, let's acknowledge, first of all, that in fact, it's a document that does not reflect the eloquence, the soaring rhetoric, the stirring words that moved a nation and changed the world. It was not a document like the Declaration of Independence, which in fact changed the way in which people perceive government and understood the rights and liberties of mankind. It's a document which is rather dry. It lacks all traces of wit. That's not surprising given the fact that it was written by attorneys. <laughs> it's a document, moreover, that if you look at the Constitution proper, consists of 87 sentences long. That bit of trivia will serve you well if you're on a date and the conversation is slow going. Go ahead and throw out that piece of trivia. It's sure to guarantee you a second date. The text of the Constitution is the subject of tremendous debate, and well, it should be, because after all, 200 years after it was written, we have a difficult time on many occasions trying to perceive what the framers were attempting to accomplish. What was that founding generation primarily interested in when it crafted a document which attempted to impose limitations on governmental power? One way to look at that is to consider America's constitutional journey. And for our purposes, we might well say that America's constitutional journey began in the middle of the 18th century during a period of rising tensions between England and its American colonies. There was a point in time beginning in the 1750s roughly where England was growing nervous about the rising ambitions of American colonists to strike out on their own, to assert broader independence, to create nationhood to some degree, and at all events, they wanted governmental autonomy. They loved England. American colonists were, after all, subjects of England. They were loyal to the king, but they were growing weary and tired of the restraints being pushed upon them by the mother country. And Part of their response ushered forth criticism, broad criticism of the laws and the policies and the procedures enacted by parliament and by the English monarch. And they began to voice their protest and utter their concerns by utilizing the printing press. And they ushered forth many different opinions that laid bare what they perceived to be the fallacies of English governmental policies, and this grew tiresome for those in power on the other side of the Atlantic. Soon, Parliament enacted a law which sent placemen and governmental agents into the colonies to search homes and industries and businesses for those printing presses, and they empowered those engaged in the searches with what we call writs of assistance, general search warrants which were little more than a fishing expedition searching for all telltale signs of violations of English law. And American merchants soon became angry about this. And so they turned to a young fiery attorney known in those days for his wonderful oratorical skills. His name was James Otis. And they had Otis bring a lawsuit on their behalf in 1761 in the landmark case known as the Writs of Assistance case.
It was a remarkable case because young James Otis told judges who were, of course, English judges in a Boston courtroom that the passage of this law authorizing broad search warrants represented a violation of the English Constitution and the rights of colonists as Englishmen. Those English judges wondered, what was Otis smoking? Parliament cannot possibly violate the English Constitution because in that period of time, Parliament was sovereign, which is to say it was the Constitution. Otis was pressing an argument, radical, by any stretch of the imagination, to those English judges saying, in effect, that when he considered a Constitution, he considered it to be superior to government. And that rankled the English judges, and needless to say, he lost the case because Parliament was the Constitution. It had authority to do whatever it wanted to do, with the exception of what Blackstone described as the ability to turn a man into a woman and a woman into a man. That would take many more years of medical education. At that point in time, however, the English judges could not accept this radical argument advanced by Otis that a constitution is superior to government and that government derives its power from the constitution. He lost that case, as I say, but there was an observer in that courtroom that day, a 25-year-old man who would become a famous in America by the name of John Adams. And Adams waxed eloquently about the argument mounted by James Otis when he later observed then and there, the child independence was born. That, John Adams said, was the spark that ignited the American Constitution because what Otis did in that argument was to supply an intellectual tool, a powerful argument to colonists everywhere who wanted to attack all of the various procedures and policies enacted by Parliament which rankled Americans up and down the eastern seaboard and into the hinterlands. With that argument, Americans could now complain that at every turn, Parliament was violating the rights of the American colonists as Englishmen. James Otis, then, is properly known as the godfather of American constitutionalism. As you know, we have many titles, many godfathers and godmothers in America. Otis deserves that title, godfather of American constitutionalism. Rosa Parks was the godmother of American civil rights. Certainly it's fair to say James Brown was the godfather of soul. <laughs> James Madison is known as the father of the American Constitution. And George Washington, of course, is known as the father of our nation. Although I think a correction is in order. I think that title, father of the nation, properly belongs to Benjamin Franklin because he fathered more children out of wedlock than any of the other founders. So it's time to give him his due. Otis's conception of a constitution then that would subordinate government to the rule of law became the founding achievement, the touchstone for what Americans would come to embrace as the essence of constitutional government. Namely, the first principle of American constitutionalism, that government has only that power granted to it by the constitution. Justice Black would later say many years after that, that 
The great struggle for constitutional government in this country involved the struggle to ensure that men in power would be subject to the rule of law rather than their own arbitrary will. And indeed, ladies and gentlemen, that is the great struggle of American constitutionalism. That's the great struggle that confronts every constitutional government. James Madison said in the Federalist Papers, the great question we face in our time is this, how do we persuade government to obey the Constitution? That was the great question in 1787. I submit it's the great question in our time. How is it that we persuade our government to obey the Constitution? The framers' response toward that end was, as you all know, to erect the separation of powers and the checks and balances that would delimit governmental authority to hedge and to cabin in governmental power at every turn. But those structures, those pillars of the Constitution would never be enough. As Madison pointed out, we rely on the people to preserve Republican government. We rely on the people to closely monitor government. If, after all, the American people don't pick up the cudgels and assume the responsibility to scrutinize governmental power, to hold it accountable to the Constitution at every turn, who will do it? Who will do it? The founders knew something about how to achieve those ends, at least structurally. John Marshall, a great Chief Justice John Marshall, wrote in Marbury versus Madison, to what end do we erect constitutions to limit governmental power if those intended to be restrained by governmental power may transgress its provisions at any turn? Indeed, to what end do we write constitutions if we're not going to insist that the government adhere to the Constitution? That was the great challenge. It is the great challenge of any time. When the framers said that they believe that every governmental action must in some way, shape, or form be anchored in a constitutional provision, they meant seriously to require government to trace its actions back to a constitutional principle. If the governmental departments, the judiciary, the presidency, the Congress is required to do that, then that is a sure bet that governmental actions will be accountable to the people because the people could examine the constitutional text, they could examine the structure of the Constitution, they could acquire knowledge about various interpretations of constitutional provisions, and they would be in a position then to cry down governmental actions which exceeded their limits. And by the way, during the founding period, the great four-letter word of that time was usurpation. Okay, a little longer than four letters. George Washington himself lived in dread fear that he might someday be regarded as a usurper. And he worked very hard and wrote long letters to colleagues around the nation saying that he most feared that tagline. He most feared being called a usurper because usurpation of power means nothing more than the government holding the American people in contempt. Because whenever a governmental department exceeds its authority, 
encroaches on a constitutional provision, what the government is essentially saying is this. We don't care about what the people wanted. We don't care that the people did not want this Department of Government to engage in this action or that action. And that's what the founders feared most because it would make governmental action illegitimate. And why, after all, did they frame a constitution in the first place? To reflect the fundamental choices of the American people about the nature of government that they desired. James Iredell of North Carolina, one of the ablest of the founders, perhaps the most acute theorist of the time and later a member of the Supreme Court, said that what the people have done in framing the Constitution is that we have said we are willing to be bound by these particular principles with this particular division of authority and this particular allocation of power. The American people have not agreed to be bound by any other principles and we have not agreed to submit to any others. That fascination among the framers for committing governmental powers to the Constitution and to delimiting governmental power by the Constitution was in their minds the key to maintaining limited government that reflected the choices of the people. The decision by the American people to write a Constitution that reflected their views and to ratify that particular Constitution meant that they were embracing and embodying the greatest of the notions in the Declaration of Independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that the people have a right to create a government of their choice. That was the bridge from the rhetorical flourish in the Declaration of Independence, penned by Thomas Jefferson, to the Constitution of the United States, which would represent a statement by we the people. And even though the Constitution does not embody those marvelous rhetorical flourishes in the Declaration of Independence that stirred a world to rethink its views about government and the relationship between government and the people. The Constitution of the United States nevertheless speaks to us in very clear, crisp terms in the preamble of the Constitution for the purpose of announcing to the world that Americans have conceived of a new way to protect liberty. And that is found in that majestic sentence, we the people ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States. That was the most powerful, most commanding voice that a group of people anywhere in the world could offer to say, this is our Constitution, this reflects our views, this is all we're willing to give to the government of the United States these powers, but no others. The key from the framers' perspective always was that government must be accountable to the people. And here, it was incumbent upon the people to exercise their rights that would shortly be enshrined through the Bill of Rights, to maintain a vigil, to scrutinize governmental action, to speak up whenever they perceived that there were violations of the Constitution or assaults on liberties of the people, and it was their duty because who, after all, more than the American people could possibly maintain that anybody else had a greater interest in the maintenance 
of a republic. Who more than we the people could argue that there was a greater interest in limiting constitutional authority. And so the founding generation, steeped in the waves of dissent and protest, urged their fellow Americans to take up the cudgels at every turn to watch government carefully. That, my friends, is a lesson worth remembering as we track America's constitutional journey toward a more perfect union. It is well to remember that this nation was founded in dissent. The founders were among the sharpest critics of public policy. After all, they were quick to point out the errors of governmental policies spawned by parliament and the monarchy. They were quick to decry laws that encroached upon their rights, both as Englishmen and their perception of natural rights. So they were sharp critics, and they believed that that way was the way to the maintenance of liberty and a republic. And so it's well to remember that lesson, to take it to heart, because so often over the years in American history, we have been quick to criticize our fellow Americans who are courageous enough to criticize government at every level, from the city councils to the county commissions to the state legislature to the federal government. How many of us from time to time have picked up the newspaper and seen a letter to the editor decrying the lack of patriotism, the lack of commitment to one's nation for daring to criticize the government? But the reality is, if we criticize those who would criticize our government, we have forgotten our birthright because America was born in dissent. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we all fall prey from time to time. We all succumb to the easy tendency to demonize and perhaps to even destroy our political opponents. Americans, unfortunately, have done that from the early 1790s to yesterday. We fall prey to that, but that betrays our better angels. That violates what this nation is all about. But this is not a partisan issue. The virtue has not been on the side of the Republicans any more than it's been on the side of the Democrats. During World War I, for example, Woodrow Wilson, a progressive to the core, nevertheless criticized in a very bitter way those who would even question his governmental policies, and he labeled his critics as unpatriotic and disloyal to the United States. One of those persons whom he criticized happened to be the former president, Teddy Roosevelt, who was quick to criticize Wilson's conduct of World War I. And if ever we had a hyper-patriot in this country, it was surely Teddy Roosevelt. He took great anger at the fact that Wilson would discourage Americans from criticizing his policies and indeed discourage Americans from criticizing government at any turn. And he said of Wilson, it is morally treasonable for a president of the United States to decry criticism of the American government. Teddy Roosevelt got it right. What he meant at that point in time is this is our government. If we ever refrain from criticizing governmental policies because we believe that the best way to show our patriotism and loyalty to America, if the best way is to remain quiet, 
then surely we have abandoned the very Republican enterprise that was the origin and foundation of the country. Another astute Republican 40 years later, Robert Taft, a senator from Ohio who would have made a very fine president, but who had the misfortune of seeking the office at the very same time that there was a very popular Republican, you might have heard of him, Dwight D. Eisenhower. He too said that criticism of the government is essential to the maintenance of our democracy. Those two great Republicans, in league with numerous Democrats across the years, have gotten it right. That the way for the American people to maintain limited government, to maintain constitutional government, is for the people to speak out at any point when they believe that the government has acted unwisely or irresponsibly, unconstitutionally or unreasonably. And they understood, and the founders understood, that sometimes we as citizens reach a point of deep-seated conflict. Our apologies as we briefly interrupt Dr. Adler's address at this point, where there was a technical problem with the recording. We rejoined Dr. Adler about two minutes later, where we now pick up the broadcast. As a scholar was to say, this is what the Constitution means. My interests and my duties as a citizen were otherwise, but I might say, well, I could work to try to amend the Constitution. Good luck on that. Or I might persuade America's policy to be changed. Good luck on that at that point. And so it taught me a very important lesson, one which I've shared with my students over the years, and I'm happy to share with civic audiences elsewhere, that when that happens, I think it is our higher duty as citizens to acknowledge the Constitution as the supreme law of the land, and until we can change the Constitution, we have to recognize that our policy preferences are going to be subordinate to the Constitution. And I was happy to learn that I was not out in left field. I'm never in left field, I'm in right field. I was happy to learn that the great Chief Justice Marshall had observed in McCullough versus Maryland in 1819, in a landmark case, and many regard this as Marshall's greatest opinion. He wrote in that majestic opinion that the peculiar circumstances of the moment may render a measure more or less wise, but cannot render it more or less constitutional. Is that not an important statement of constitutional principle to us? That is to say, any measure passed by Congress may be more or less wise, but the relative wisdom of that measure does not affect its constitutionality. And that's exactly what Thomas Jefferson had in mind as well when he said, we need to refrain from bending and twisting the Constitution or in his language, we must avoid converting the Constitution into a thing of wax, to manipulate it and to shape it in accordance with our preferences, because you all know the end of that game. Whoever serves on the Supreme Court, whoever holds the reins of power will make the Constitution mean whatever they want it to mean, and that might well fly in the face of the fundamental choices made by the American people when they wrote and ratified the Constitution. 
And that's why then we recognize that some of us might hold liberal policy views or conservative policy views, but those policies are irrelevant to an understanding of the Constitution. And therefore, it's incumbent upon us to educate our fellow citizens, to pat them on the back for their ideas, if they're wise policies, but to say, remember, that unless the Constitution is changed, your views may not be commensurate with the Constitution, and that calls upon us to be citizens. And the station of citizenship in the United States is the highest station that men and women can occupy any place in the world. We are not mere subjects. We're certainly not slaves. We hope we're not indentured servants. We are citizens, and that means that as Abraham Lincoln said, this is a government of, by, and for the people. And how do we maintain this wonderful form of government? We must always remember, as Justice Brandeis said, that the greatest menace to liberty is an inert people. We must be willing to raise our voices, to expose governmental actions that violate the Constitution, without fear of being called unpatriotic or disloyal. There was a marvelous and influential German immigrant who came to the United States in the 19th century and served in the United States Senate. His name was Carl Schurz. And at one point in, the, in an intense debate on the floor of the Senate, he was accused of being unpatriotic. He was accused of being disloyal to the country that he had embraced and grown to love. And Senator Schurz responded famously, my country, right or wrong, when right to be kept right, when wrong to be put right. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our duty as citizens. It's our duty to speak up. We all understand that we're going to disagree from time to time. But in the immortal words, of uh, the distinguished United States Senator from Idaho, whose name graces the chair that I hold, and whose center is named after him, Jim McClure, in this very room, at this very podium, on the occasion of the very first program, the inaugural City Club program, reminded the audience, while we have a right to disagree, let's do so in an agreeable manner. Thank you very much. Thank you. And then now the moment of accountability begins. I'm, I'm, I'm to be cross-examined by this distinguished, distinguished attorney. Can you hear me? Is, that, is it working? David, your audience uh, certainly has been absorbed by your subject matter and by your remarks, and, and they have been prompted to ask you a number of probing questions. <laughs> which I will do my best to relate to you in a most civilized way. Uh, 
one of the first ones here that, that, that I have chosen among the many questions that are here uh, has to do with perceptions of government and perceptions of sovereignty. And that is to say, can you distinguish for this audience the concept of state sovereignty and the sovereignty of the individual? If we are a government of, by, and for the people, how do the states as sovereign entities, if they are, play into that? That's a very fine question. I appreciate that very much. Uh, this question, this issue of states' rights and state sovereignty is a much debated issue. It's a hot button issue for many people in this country, particularly in the West. Here in Idaho, that's an issue of great enthusiasm. It certainly was in a bygone period for people in the southern United States. When the framers gathered in Philadelphia, they made a very clear determination that the only body which could bestow authority upon the Constitution and to breathe life into this dead document was the ultimate power, the ultimate authority in America, and that was the people. There was a discussion about whether or not the states might be able to confer that authority on the Constitution, and everybody agreed that's not a possibility because the states will be subordinate to the Constitution. As an inferior, they could hardly grant authority to the Constitution from which they're going to derive their authority. Therefore, the framers determined that the people were sovereign, not states. And indeed, the Constitution itself reflected an effort to overcome the weaknesses and deficiencies of the Articles of Confederation, which sponsored and featured state sovereignty, much to the chagrin of those who examined the problems confronting the country. So in very quick order then, the framers shun the concept of state sovereignty and embrace the concept of popular sovereignty. We the people are sovereign, which is to say that no other entity is sovereign, not the states, not the federal government. What governmental entities possess is power. They have jurisdiction. They have domain over a certain province, but they are not sovereign. And on that point, let me extend the remark a bit by saying we all understand the political currency, the great emotional value that is to be found when we can say the federal government is violating our state's rights. That's powerful. But in fact, states don't have rights. Only individuals have rights. But of course, if we use those terms technically and correctly and we say the federal government is encroaching on our domain, it drains the emotion. It takes away the currency, doesn't it? Nobody's going to shed a tear because the federal government has encroached on our domain or encroached on our jurisdiction. So even though technically only individuals have rights, governmental entities do not, we continue to see politicians of both parties and I will go out on a limb here and predict we'll continue to see politicians of both parties asserting states' rights. Thank you very much. I, uh, I really have no follow-up for that. It's consistent with an article you recently wrote in the, in the, uh, for the Post Register in explaining the distinctions that you have just again explained to this audience. And I guess we all must recognize that there will be 
politics that imposes itself on the concepts of sovereignty and states' rights versus individual rights, but that may not be entirely relevant to the constitutional document that governs our lives. Yeah, that's very well said, Kim. And here again, we divorce uh, policy preferences, political goals, political ideas from what the Constitution means. For example, in McCullough versus Maryland in 1819, the landmark case that I mentioned earlier, Chief Justice Marshall and his brethren on the court had to address that very issue. Who is sovereign? And Marshall ultimately said, the people are sovereign. Look at the preamble of the Constitution, which reads, quote, we the people ordain and establish this Constitution. It does not say, we the states ordain and establish the Constitution. So Marshall and the other members of the court laid to rest that issue, seemingly, but it came back to haunt the nation during the secessionist movement. We thought the Civil War ended that issue, but it didn't. It came back to haunt the nation in the 1950s as southern states maintained states' rights and, as, and asserted state sovereignty. So as you point out, for political reasons, we're going to see it asserted again and again. This listener is interested, as many people are in Idaho, and particularly throughout the West, in issues of gun rights and issues of the Second Amendment, which uh, provides the basis for, in a constitutional sense, the arguments of the National Rifle Association, for example, that has been extraordinarily successful in maintaining gun rights in this nation. This question, I think, is perceptive in asking you, we often hear half of the Second Amendment quoted. What did the founders mean by a, quote, well-regulated militia? That's a great question. Next question. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, on occasion, when, when I've uh, spoken to groups around the state, I get this question, so thanks very much. The language of the Second Amendment reads, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Two separate clauses, a dependent and an independent clause. For all of those of you who slept through grammar school and discussions about grammar, uh, Chief Justice Berger once said, and he was appointed by Richard Nixon. He once said that the best way to understand the Second Amendment is to is if we inserted between the two clauses the word therefore, which would mean, according to the Chief Justice view, that it would then read, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, therefore the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed which meant then that the late Chief Justice believed that the right to keep and bear arms relied upon a demonstration that your possession of firearms was necessary to protect the country from external invasion. That's a view long held by the Supreme Court, long held by the Justice Department, long held by both Republicans and Democrats. That view, however, changed with the ascension of former Attorney General John Ashcroft to that position under President George Bush, who now turned history on its head 
and began to argue that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms, which of course is a manifestation of the NRA's position, and a position which frankly is very popular here in Idaho. So what I always tell audiences is this, that I do not believe that the Second Amendment reflects an individual right to keep and bear arms, Rather, it protects the right to keep and bear arms for the purpose of protecting the nation from an external invasion. And that's not merely my view. As I say, that was the view of Chief Justice Berger and the long-held view of the Justice Department. Now, there's no doubt that that answer might disappoint at least 50% of you. On occasion, when I speak around the state and offer that view and the audience is leaving and it's 10 o'clock at night and people have been disgruntled and walked out of the room and I look at that dark parking lot with a couple of pickups with gun racks, I think maybe I should have tempered my remarks a little bit. So here's where I believe we all derive a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. It's not found in the Second Amendment because the framers were only concerned about establishing a militia to which people uh, might belong because at that point in time there was no standing army because remember at that point there was tremendous fear of a standing army because the founders always associated a standing army with a violation of the people's rights. So they wouldn't establish a standing army. But at any point in those days, uh, somebody might have to grab a gun or a musket, rush into the village at three in the morning to protect their village. So they understood that need, but the right to keep and bear arms for purposes of private use, hunting and sportsmanship, I will say is found in the Ninth Amendment, not the Second. Because the Ninth Amendment speaks of those rights which are uh, left to the people. The Ninth Amendment uh, speaks in pretty clear terms that, quote, the enumeration in this Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. Who has a copy of the Constitution that Tim handed down? I think that's an exact quote. It ain't check on that, George. At any rate, the Ninth Amendment then leaves to citizens rights which are not in effect spelled out, these are implied rights. Well, the question then is what are the implied rights? We can argue a lot about what are implied rights. At that point in time, we must understand that there was no opportunity for people to go buy dinner at Albertsons or Savings Center, and so they needed to hunt and fish. If you weren't a vegetarian and you ate lettuce, ate rabbit food, you needed to hunt and fish, how were you gonna do that? You needed to have the right to own a gun so you could go shoot an animal for dinner and feed your family. Under, I think, a proper interpretation of the Ninth Amendment, whatever governmental practices did not prohibit a well-known or widespread activity was left to the people and considered to be a right, considered to be a liberty. And so at that point in time, even though ownership of guns and hunters' rights were regulated as they are now, it was understood that unless there were regulations prohibiting the ownership of a gun or hunting in a certain place, that the absence of that prohibition 
implied a right of the people to keep and bear arms to go shoot animals and fish. Okay, you wouldn't shoot fish. If you're a sportsman, let me just say, you don't shoot fish. <laughs> so I think that that's the proper place to find the right to keep and bear arms for hunting, not in the Second Amendment. Obviously, that, that uh, position has saved you from certain death in a dark parking lot <laughs> when there are only two pickups left <laughs> filled with arms. <laughs> I've learned a little bit over the years. Well, another uh, one of your listeners has asked uh, a very important overarching question here that I think arises out of the very popular current Tea Party movement with so much talk about the Constitution and the consistency of our governance with what people believe to be constitutional principles. There is also a genuine interest in the possibility of a constitutional convention. So this, uh, this listener points out that Article 5 of the Constitution specifically provides for, under certain circumstances, at certain requests as provided in that article, for the calling of a constitutional convention. Do you think that could be done, number one? And number two, could it be controlled in a way so as not to be extraordinarily dangerous in modern America? That's a very good question. Uh, the reality is, is that from time to time, people have pushed such a proposed amendment, trying to urge the states to call what would be a second constitutional convention. We've only had one. Opponents fear that some crazy ideas might be ginned up in such a convention, and they fear then that those ideas might begin to distort the Constitution. I have never feared the convening of a second national meeting to reconsider the Constitution, because I think if you're committed to the concept of popular government and popular sovereignty, the people have a right to review the Constitution at any different point. Doesn't mean to say that I don't fear some of the ideas. I imagine a lot of those ideas would be pretty fearsome and bothersome. But remember that even if ideas are proposed as constitutional amendments, that doesn't mean that they automatically become part of the Constitution because proposals still require ratification. And the ratification of a proposed amendment is something very difficult to obtain because that requires three-fourths of the states to, to assent. And that's difficult to do. After all, we've only amended the Constitution 27 times. And that's only 17 times after the Bill of Rights was amended right on the heels of the adoption of the Constitution. So difficult to obtain. I don't think it will happen. You know, I notice we're, we're running out of time, and uh, the number of questions I have here could keep this seminar going for another couple hours, I think, Doctor. But uh, there are some questions having to do specifically with contemporary issues. And, uh, and I think uh, people in your audience would be very interested to hear from you on some of these matters. So this question asks specifically uh, about the recent Supreme Court decision removing limits on corporate political contributions and essentially uh, defining, emphasizing the fact that corporations in the eyes of the law, and in that case, are persons. Would you like to comment about that? Sure, the, the references to the recent Citizens United a case that came down a year ago 
in a 5-4 decision. Uh, I, was very, I have been very critical of that decision, and here's why. I think the court committed a major error in saying that corporations can open up their bank accounts to spend unlimited amounts of money on behalf of candidates anywhere throughout the United States. The court rested its opinion on the idea that expenditures or the expenditure of money is a form of free speech. Now, I take the view that expenditures of money certainly do have a speech element, but not merely a speech element. I believe that it's more of a property matter. But in either case, even if we accept the premise, as I do, that there is a speech element inherent in our willingness to spend our dollars on behalf of causes, that we make a mistake if we assume that free speech is absolute. It's not. We all recognize, and the Supreme Court, like the founders, has always recognized that free speech is limited. The question is, what kinds of limited limits are imposed upon speech? I would take the view that there is considerable danger to the American political system if corporations, or any entity for that matter, labor unions and others, might be allowed to spend untold amounts of money on behalf of candidates because it would, would disrupt the playing field, it would give a decided advantage to those who have the largest pocketbooks, and that would work to the disadvantage of voters who ought to have a more or less equal opportunity to appraise uh, and to judge the qualities and the credentials of the various candidates. There is great fear then that a few powerful corporations might be able to tip the balance, make a very different outcome in any election around the country. I don't know how many of you read John Grisham's novels, but the most, one of the most recent I, this novels was, I think, the, the Appeal, in which the premise of the book uh, rested on the idea of powerful corporations buying a Supreme Court justice uh, in Mississippi by affecting the outcome of the election. So, uh, so that's where I stand on that issue, Tim. You recognize, of course, John Grisham is a lawyer. <laughs> he is, and uh, while he tells a great story, there are other writers who are better. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I raise this issue only because you uh, earlier in your remarks characterized lawyers' writing as dry as can be. I thought maybe you would give us... I was outrageous. <laughs> you were outrageous. outrageous. <laughs> well, free speech is uh, so fundamental to our entire system, and of course the First Amendment and its rights are so fundamental to our entire system of governance in this nation and fundamental to our liberties. One of our number here would like you to put it in the current context of the minister in Florida who recently threatened to stage a Koran burning exercise. Would that have been a protected First Amendment matter? That's a good question. I have to say that every month I do a radio call-in show. Uh, with, a, with a host in Rhode Island. And it's, a, it's an enjoyable show. I've done this for three years. Unfailingly, every time he introduced me to his audience, he said, this is Dave, Dr. David Adler from the University of Idaho. 
no matter how many times I corrected him and said it, at Idaho State University, I finally grew so tired that I took this new post at University of Idaho. <laughs> Sometimes you know you're destined for a new, a new location. Uh, he asked this very question. It's on the minds of, of lots of people. The simple answer is yes, the minister would have had a First Amendment right as a matter of free speech to burn the Koran. But I think it would have been very unwise. It would have been an exercise in horrific judgment because as we know, both President Obama and Secretary of Defense Gates said both publicly and in private conversations that if you burn the Koran, you will inflame Muslims and jeopardize the lives of American soldiers and American citizens abroad. And there's no reason to do that, no reason to incur the risk but also the, the idea that America is at war with Islam as a result of the 9-11 outrage is wholly unfounded. We're not at war with Islam. We are at war with some fanatics. And when you talk about fanatics and extremists, whether on the right or the left, what they share in common is their extremism. And certainly the way to deal with fundamentalists and fanatics abroad is not to imitate their behavior at home and to announce to the world, we're going to burn your holy books and that would unleash yet another uh, rising crescendo of terrorism. We are wound down here, uh, David, but for a final question, uh, uh, I've selected what I think is uh, a real softball for you. Uh, this audience certainly will know that the Supreme Court is made up of nine justices, and one of those justices is by name Antonin Scalia. This listener asked you if you would please to, quote, explain Scalia. <laughs> How many more hours do we have in this program? Well, uh, Antonin Scalia, who was named to the Supreme Court by President Ronald Reagan, has distinguished himself as an articulate voice for a, for a particular view about how the Constitution ought to be interpreted. He is well known publicly and in some writings and some law review articles and books that I've read that he believes that the Constitution should be interpreted in light of the framers' intentions. That far down the road, I think, is a good idea because I myself, as a constitutional conservative, might come as a surprise to some of you or those who read my columns in the Post Register, I am uh, regarded in academic circles as a constitutional conservative because I believe that the courts have the obligation to effectuate the aims and purposes of the framers until they are otherwise overridden were changed by a constitution. So Justice Scalia and I share that approach, but here's where we part ways. I like that approach as a matter of philosophy, but in many ways, the good justice is a poor historian. That is to say that when he begins to read the framers' discussions and debates about some issues, then he engages in some wayward readings, and that's particularly true in his view about presidential power. Through my career, I've always uh, attempted to point out the concerns about expansive presidential power and have criticized both Republicans and Democrats in doing so, 
But I think Justice Scalia is mistaken in arguing that the framers intended the president to have very broad, almost unlimited power, and that the executive of the United States, the executive power of the United States, is vested solely and exclusively in the president. But uh, it's a very important subject. I share his view that the framers' intentions are very powerful, indeed ought to influence our interpretation of the Constitution, but then I would need another hour to explain our other differences, but I appreciate that question. Well, regrettably, Dr. Adler, we don't have another hour. We are through today with this very enlightening presentation. We thank you very much for being here for us. Uh, as an audience, we are going to miss you, and we wish you well in your new assignment. Good. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. The City Club of Idaho Falls airs on the final Monday of each month here on FM 91. Archived audio of IF City Club forums are available to hear or download at ifcityclub.com. Coming up in October, the City Club presents Boise State University Emeritus Professor and Public Policy Consultant Dr. James B. Weatherby on the topic Observations on Current Public Policy and Commentary on the 2010 State and National General Elections. The forum will be held October 14th from noon until 1.30 at Benyon Student Union Building in Idaho Falls at University Place. KISU's rebroadcast of this forum is scheduled for Monday, October 25th at 7 p.m. Serving the public radio needs of southeastern Idaho for more than 11 years, this is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls. Majority funding for KISU-FM programming comes from ASISU student fees and from listeners like you.